Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough. Today, we have with us Matthew Schmitz, who is the co-founder of a new magazine, a compact magazine. So welcome, Matthew, to the program. Josiah, Doug, thank you guys for having me. Um, you're sending good Southern hospitality to a Yankee. Here, so. <laughs> well, Thanks. you're from... Uh, you, you, I mean, I guess you're a Yankee now, but I yes. believe you're from like uh, one of those rectangular states that are completely <laughs> flat in the middle of the country and just have a bunch of corn, right? Yeah, probably what I should have said is thanks for extending hospitality to a Nebraska corn husker. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if Texas um, uh, football fans of, for, of whatever school ever disliked uh, Nebraska, but. I tell you, uh, toward the end of the Big 12 days, Nebraska fans really disliked the Longhorns. I think a lot of people dislike the Longhorns. Well, that's true. And I also, I did, I am a alumnus of Notre Dame, which has its own history with Nebraska, um, mostly a, a tragic one um, from our own point of view. But but we, we're going to move past that. Okay, so tell us about this. Tell us about this new magazine. What is Compact Magazine? Absolutely. Compact is a new subscriber-supported web publication. It just launched here a few days ago, and we've had a tremendous uh, response. Um, You know, we were written up in the New York Times. Uh, One of my co-founders was on Tucker Carlson, and there were critical uh, articles written on it by Reason Magazine, uh, New York Magazine, Jacobin Magazine. So what is this? Compact seeks seeks to bring together people out of the left and the right to have a kind of conversation that isn't happening elsewhere. One that is alive to alive to conservative concerns about culture, but also to what are regarded as more classically left-wing concerns about class. But, um, you know, a lot of the people we have uh, coming out of the left who are involved in Compact, these are people who were very involved in the Bernie movement, very involved in the Corbyn the Jeremy Corbyn movement in the United Kingdom. And they've seen those movements collapse and they've seen that, um, you know, this socialist left, which a lot of conservatives were concerned about. Um, it, it was a threat. It was a problem, but it wasn't maybe the, the problem that conservatives always thought it was. It wasn't so much trying to overturn our system or actually impose socialism. It was instead just trying to carve out a slightly better livelihood for members of Basically, the um, you know the kind of editors, activists, NGO employees who make up the rank and file of the Democratic Socialists of America. So it was really um, socialism for the professional class, and I, that's why I think conservatives were right to dislike millennial socialism because they realized it wasn't actually going to serve everyone's interests. But a lot of people who were genuinely idealistic about it are now exiting that movement. And similarly, similarly, there are a lot of people on the right who are disaffected with, you know, longstanding um, kind of, you know, beliefs or tendencies on the right. Um, you know, one of them I think is probably interventionism, foreign policy interventionism. Obviously that's still a very strong strain in uh, 
among GOP politicians, but I think among um, thinkers and writers on the on the right, maybe that's changing. And then there's also the more uh, you know kind of free market, um, you know, open borders, open markets ideal that prevailed for some time on the right. I think that there's been a rethinking of that uh, since the rise of Trump and continuing in his wake. Okay, so I want to talk about all those the the sort of grand political, cultural, economic issues. But uh, before we get to that, I do have a couple of like, you know, small, almost trivial questions. So first, why compact mag? Like why, where did you get the the title there? Yeah, when I proposed it to my co-founders, when we were trying to come up with a name, I was thinking of uh, magazine names I liked. And one magazine name that I've always liked is Ramparts Magazine, which began as a Catholic journal. Um, and I, I think out of the, uh, I don't know what decade it started, but it began as a Catholic journal, but then with the rise of the new left on the West coast, it became a radical new left journal. Um, I love the name ramparts because it's relatively concrete and also because it comes out of the, uh, canon or the sacred scripture of the American civil religion. It's a term that comes from the star spangled banner from our national anthem ramparts. And I thought, you know, I want, I want a word that comes out of our, that comes out of the American tradition. And one of the defining moments in that tradition is of course the Mayflower compact. And so that struck me as fitting. Um, and then it was further fitting because what compact, uh, seeks to do is to draw together, um, genuinely disparate elements toward common ends, and it also seeks, I think, in various ways to advance solidarity uh, today. And for all those reasons, Compact seemed to me a very fitting name. Okay. And then the other the other small question is you say that you're uh, subscriber supported. Uh, I go to the website. It looks like there's there's tons of free stuff. So what uh, – <laughs> is it like uh, – Subscriber supported in terms of like it's a Patreon or, you know, like goodwill donation type of thing. Is there going to be a lot of uh, subscriber only content or what is the plan there? Yeah, I mean, right now we have this um, very nefarious marketing scheme where we're offering all of our content free and we're going to get everyone hooked on it. <laughs> and then um, our ironclad paywall will go up uh and it will be absolutely impassable. Um, and everyone who's been enjoying this free content will feel compelled to subscribe. We've already had very encouraging subscriber numbers, but soon, soon the paywall will be going up. And our, our goal um, is to create a self-sustaining institution, uh, one that relies on, uh, that, one that thrives by appealing to readers uh, rather than relying uh, on donors. So that, that's the idea of the, of the thing on the business side to, um, make it, make a go of it, um, just by getting subscriptions. Yeah. So, I mean, you have already, uh, 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 an impressive, uh, and interesting combination of, uh, columnists and authors that you're publishing there. Uh, you know, everyone from, uh, Peter Hitchens and Christopher Caldwell to Green Glenwald, Michael Tracy. Is, is it Zizek? Is it pronounced Zizek? I don't really know. So sort of like 
Slovenian, I'm not Slovenian, so I can't really. Yeah, Slovenian. Well, we almost uh, we're recording another podcast with a Slovenian soon, so hmm. maybe we can uh, get him to clear off exactly how you say that name. But uh, you know him, uh, Adrian Vermeul. Uh, you just had something today that I saw by uh, Walter Kern, who is a great uh, fiction writer, uh, commentator on the cultural scene. But anyway, so. But uh, these are people who come, you know, um, from a wide variety of perspectives, uh, you know, who perhaps mainly share in common a profound disagreement with the with the mainstream, you know, so-called policy consensus. Uh, And I do wonder, you know, one criticism that I have seen leveled at Compact Mag is that there's just, you know, is there really a shared vision among the different people? You know, you got some socialists over here and some like uh, trad Catholics over there and, you know, maybe a few uh, paleocons, you know, sprinkled in there. But is that, uh, you know, some some like uh, theocrats, you know? People, people call you all sorts of names, right? But, um, uh, you know, is there, is there enough like, uh, shared vision there to really make a go of it? You know, it's, if you kind of work on a construction crew, as I did for many summers in Nebraska or, or in any, almost any other kind of, uh, workplace in America, you'll see, you'll find lots of people with differing views. One big exception to that is cultural institutions, which tend to have very uniform views, the most prestigious and powerful cultural institutions are uniformly left liberal. And there are ones of uh, lesser importance um, and often lesser quality that are conservative or that might be um, some, some other kind of a more dissident outlook. One thing that we wanted to do was try to bring together people who really did have different views into a single institution because we thought that uh, would possibly uh, create some interesting combinations and strive everyone to uh, think more critically, speak more clearly. Now, you know, will, will this result in um, a new fusion of some kind or a new, uh, a, a new synthesis uh, ideologically? I, I don't know. I don't necessarily expect so. And that isn't our uh, immediate aim. It's first of all, to create an excellent magazine that, does uh, take seriously um, class and that does take seriously culture and that uh, cuts against the grain of, uh, of mainstream opinion. And um, there will be um, you know, very, you know, very real disagreements and um, I, I expect some sparks in, in the process. I do want to ask about some of, some of the specific fractures that have seemed to have happened both on left and right. And you had a piece in, in your inaugural piece in Compact Magazine, which I, I think is like the, the uh, breakup of the foreign policy consensus, something like that. The right's foreign policy crack up. There you go. And, you, you know, I, I guess if you were... Uh, a simple formulation. People used to talk in the Republican Party or in conservative circles about the three-legged stool, right? Um, and so you had, uh, you know, social conservatism, economic, uh, like free market 
type views and then, you know, foreign policy. I don't I don't know that people would just have necessarily described it as intervention, interventionism, but like assertiveness on the world stage. Um, first in the form of anti-communism and then later, you know, uh, just like uh, under the first uh, under George W. Bush's presidency, uh, democracy promotion, that sort of thing. And your article is kind of about how that's fallen apart a little bit. So what's happened there? Uh, why do you think that that previous alliance uh, no longer works? And this kind of, you kind of have people who used to be strong uh, allies and seem to seem to agree on everything. Now they like kind of hate each other and spend all their time, you know, sniping at each other uh, on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, what, 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 what do you think, uh, what's your analysis of, of what's going on there? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I'm, uh, observing a change that I've perceived among conservative, uh, writers, activists, and intellectuals, uh, first of all, and this, this is not yet, I think a change that has really manifested itself in the electoral arena where it will have to manifest itself if it is to become. Uh, politically significant. Um, I, I think there's one early indication of it, which I'll get to um, in a moment. The basic uh, trend I've been observing is that you, you once had people whose you know first commitment, I would say, is was to a certain uh, vision of America's role in the world, um, to you know, a more interventionist stance about you know, projecting American power and often projecting American values. And, and then you have people, on the other hand, whose first commitment was probably to what we generally call social issues, things like um, you know, abortion, uh, gay marriage, uh, prayer in public schools, you know, various issues that have animated voters of that type. And these two groups have had a close collaboration and their intellectual uh, representatives and most prominent activists have had a very close collaboration, but at least among uh, prominent writers were seeing uh, what looks like the beginning of an alienation. And I think it is noteworthy and newsworthy because I think it is reflecting uh, more under, it's reflecting underlying changes, underlying changes in our domestic politics where socially conservative views are losing the relative standing that they once had. They're becoming less socially accepted on topics like homosexuality or uh, transgenderism. It's increasingly unacceptable to voice conservative views on those issues. And therefore, interventionists who are interested in shaping um, American policy and influencing the elite are more likely to distance themselves from those views. That's the domestic change. Then you've got the change geopolitically, which I think also uh, is uh, shaping this. And that's the fact that whereas uh, first in the Cold War, you could say America is standing for Christianity against communism, something Whitaker Chambers said in his memoir, Witness. And then you could say in the war on terror that America was standing for at least elements of Christianity against Islam. Uh, Bernard Lewis, in his essay on the roots of Muslim rage, traces the Jeffersonian principle of the separation of church and state back to the Christian tradition, back to Christ's uh, statement that we should render unto God what is God and unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And, and so Bernard Lewis uh, contrasts that, that Christian view, which he sees as the American view. He contrasts that with, the Islam, with an Islamic tradition. 
And so in both those two contests, it was sort of natural just because of who our opponents were to imagine that American arms were somehow uh, serving a more conservative and Christian outlook. And I don't know that that's the case today. The situation is complicated, certainly, but very often when are the leaders of the West of uh, things like that? You know, we, we saw this from the leader of the British Foreign Intelligence Service. He said the main contrast between the West and Putin is Putin's opposition to LGBT rights, and that's a statement that should probably alarm social conservatives because it suggests that they are uh, somehow with the enemy. They are they somehow hold values that exclude them from the West. You know, it's a, basically a reversal, a reversal of the polarity Putin has condemned often for his, um, you know, no, you know, often it's uh, said to be you know, false, um, hypocritical, cynical, meaningless. And these things might all be true, but he's identified with support of Christianity. And whereas the West is seen as relatively secular, once upon a time, Russia was seen as more secular and the West is more Christian. Now it's reversed. We speak about Russia if it's, as if it's somehow too tied up with Christianity. And we think of ourselves in the West as the good secularists. Um, that that and that's quite a change. And then even with China, which is run by the Communist Party, there's been a certain uh, retrenchment on social issues. It's uh, reversed its infamous one-child policy. It's declared its intention to reduce medically unnecessary abortions. Uh, it has banned the depiction of so-called sissy men on uh, television. And look, my contention is not that this makes China a good socially conservative country any more than it's my contention that Russia is a great Christian nation. That's not remotely my, my point or contention. My point is instead that you know Western observers of these trends will sometimes condemn this greater moral regulation in China as reflective of, you know, authoritarianism and then and then again you know social conservatism becomes associated with authoritarianism or with a foreign threat so it's not about whether or not china or russia is good or whether or not uh, uh, america is bad and I, I have a lot of hesitations about um thinking of it in those terms instead of just viscerally identifying with wherever you happen to be from but my basic view is that the kind of ideological alignments of the cold war and the war on terror are at an end and that naturally is going to shake up the relationship between interventionists and social conservatives. Social conservatives are going to become more skeptical, more skeptical about American power, the more that American leaders and leaders of other Western states identify their power with views inimical to social conservatism. Yeah, I did. Uh, Richard Hanania, who's been a guest on the show, he was noting the other day that, um, you know, Freedom House puts out this uh, ranking of how free all the different nations of the of the world are, and uh, he noted that if you look in there uh, for Poland and Hungary, maybe some other countries too, uh, they actually get downgraded. They're less free because they uh, have some restrictions on abortion. They don't have like strong enough protection against LGBT, you know, anti-LGBT discrimination, other things like that. It's very interesting. I think it's worth adding, if I may, Josiah, just one point here, which I did not get into in my essay, but which I think is worth considering. I've seen few people say in, in more recent days things like, uh, no Russian ever called me racist or no... Uh, or a cisgender. Chi 
Yeah, yeah. No, no, no Chinese ever called me bigot. That shows the dangers of, uh, I think, our very extreme like, racialism, where you know more and more certain racial groups are being uh, regarded as significant. You're being identified with your racial group, maybe even especially if you're a white man. And when, you know, to whatever extent the American regime aliens people of any racial group, be it, you know, black, uh, Muhammad Ali's time, and, and not out uh, to a degree today as well, or, or if, the, or if this is happening, uh, whites, you know, they they are going to also become more skeptical about the claims of the regime. So people who feel very alienated from their country's, uh, ruling class are just going to be more skeptical of its foreign policy claims. And that's something Muhammad Ali expressed really directly. Okay. So let's talk about uh, the economic aspect. We talked a little bit about why there's a falling out maybe between social, social, cultural conservatives and uh, foreign policy interventionists. Uh, There's also been uh, maybe to a lesser extent, but also some, uh, uh, reassessment in terms of like, uh, the economics, um, and certainly with, with your magazine or whatever, I, I know there's a, there's an article up there right now, not by you, but it says, uh, only the economic left can beat the woke or whatnot. So what, I mean, I, I, um, I'm sympathetic to a lot of the, uh, the critique, um, and point of view, of you and some of your co-founders and other folks that have put forward. I'm still basically a free market guy. What do you, I mean, like what's the, what's the case for why, um, you know, uh, cultural social conservatives should be maybe more wary of like traditional free market policy approaches and, and maybe more friendly with like these sort of Bernie left uh, type of type of people or approaches. So when I uh, speak to, to others who are interested in this, what I often hear is less a direct critique of uh, what would result if free market principles were to be enacted uh, than a critique of the system we actually have and the ways in which um, free market principles are sometimes invoked, you know, often selectively or incompletely, I'm sure, to, uh, to justify those systems. So I think that the, there's a, uh, a real dissatisfaction among some with the you know, institutional uh, conservative movement and with you know, the way that it has, uh, you know, it might speak about free, free markets or uh, conservative values, but often it can be seen as simply subserving uh, the interests of various corporations. Um, you know, one one example that I hear cited frequently is that of the American Enterprise Institute and the work done by one of its fellows, Sally Sattel, on opioid uh, prescription, where she argued for a more liberal prescription of opioids. And uh, AI was receiving uh, major funding from Purdue and the AEI, not not to tell herself, but you know, officials at AI were sending work back to Purdue saying, you know, is, isn't this good? And so, you know, there's a, uh, you know, sensibly a, you know, conservative or or free market uh, 
type of intellectual activity occurring. But if you look at it um, from another angle, it begins to look a lot like uh, simply advancing the you know, interests of certain corporations. Those, those interests might not always be bad, um, but there's a desire to um, not be uh, simply serving the interests of corporations, but to instead be serving the interests of, uh, I think, workers in particular and of the political community more broadly. We've been talking about things from the perspective of social cultural conservatives, which I think makes sense because, uh, you know, that's that's who I am. That's who you are, uh, Matthew. And, uh, you know, Doug is here. Um, but uh, obviously there are people associated with the magazine and, the, and out there. there. There is another distinct group of people um, who at least initially – uh, you know, their background was not in social conservatism or any kind of conservatism. They were just like old left wing people um, and who now feel kind of uh, alienated from the current stance uh, and positioning of the left. Often, not always, even because they disagree. Uh, I mean, I, I think one thing that you sometimes see from people is people who are like, uh, yeah, I don't like actually disagree with, um, you know, the LGBT stuff or the, I don't have a problem with like critical race theory in schools or whatever it is. Yeah. I'm pro-choice on abortion, etc. But I think these things are kind of distractions um, from the real important issues with ha- have to do with like class and economics and uh, so on and so forth. Um, so what, uh, to the extent that you were able to like, uh, you know, from your vantage point, uh, uh, look at these sorts of int- intra left conflicts, what do you, I mean, uh, there's obviously in the same way that there has been a kind of fracturing among the right into these different groups and people are reevaluating. There's clearly been something similar going on on the left side of the aisle, not only in the United States, as you noted, but in the UK and other countries. So, and uh, actually in a lot of countries, you know, the center left has kind of just been totally decimated or destroyed in a way that it hasn't really in the United States. It seems to be kind of uh you know, as powerful as ever really here. Um, so I mean, what do you, what's your assessment of that? What do you think is going on there? Is there, uh, obviously there's some sort of parallels, but what do you think they are? Yeah, I think there are probably two, um, two dynamics on the left. One is the, um, there are, you know, refugees from the very punishing habits of, denunciation that exists on the left, um, you know, social and professional cancellation for ideological deviations or personal sins, real or perceived. So a lot, quite a few leftists, some of great ability have been caught up in, in that. And I think that will tend to sour you on a movement when it um, destroys you uh, for no apparent reason and without any sort of due process. But then, you know, more broadly, I think there's a uh, a, a souring on the you know, the claims, you know, the grand claims of uh, socialism. You know, it, things like you know, you know, Sanders and Corbyn were said to stand for 
uh, workers, workers, you know, reject those movements. Um, the only people who support, you know, Sanders and Corbyn, the only people who support millennial socialism are the people who will be supported by millennial socialist policies. And that, that is these people who, you know, if you have something like student loan forgiveness, well, that's going to help people who are loaded with student loans, believe it or not. Um, not, not everyone is, uh, is loaded with, uh, student loans. And, you know, of course there, there are many, you know, it, that's, that's not just a bailout for, uh, the people who have taken out loans, by the way, that is a huge bailout for the, uh, all of these universities which employ tons of these DSA type people. And so I think that some people saw that, you know, look, this is really not serving broader interests at all. It has, a, it serves a much narrower purpose. So people, for people who had, who had some real idealism about that, uh, coming to that realization, I think was fairly disillusioning. So what, what is the, what is the commonality of, of this disparate group that you're talking about within the magazine? It seems like there's different writers that come from different schools of thought, but it, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the commonality seems like it's being, uh, a, a, is a, a feeling of being disenfranchised of being disgruntled. Is that a fair statement? And is that, is that a strong enough, you know, is that a strong enough cohesive factor to, to launch a, a magazine, a political movement, uh, what have you? Is, am, I, if, am I mischaracterizing it from your perspective? Well, I think uh, disillusionment would be a better term than uh, disgruntlement. Um, and I don't think that would be sufficient probably to start a magazine, but it might be a good, a good start. And you know, beyond that, there, there's a sense that what is on the right generally called uh, liberalism and what is on the left uh, generally called capitalism or neoliberalism, that that is part of the problem in certain ways and not necessarily or altogether, certainly not in any simple way, the solution to our problems. So there's a certain broader skepticism of, of liberalism. Now, I think, you know, ev- evidently it's enough to, to start a magazine, whether um, it will be enough to sustain it remains to be seen. And certainly not uh sufficient to start a political movement, which this magazine um, doesn't claim to be. Yeah, it. Uh, I think one line of, um, you know, critique, uh, which is, I mean, it's a, I'm going to phrase it a little harshly uh, and, you know, partially because it stings myself a little bit sometimes. But, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, social conservatives as being like the great lo- political losers of the last, uh, however, you know, half century, century, however far back, five hundred years, right? However far back you want to, you want to take it. And of course, uh, you know, socialism also uh, described as you know being put on the the ash heap of of history, and uh, uh. Despite in many ways being vindicated by events, uh, even like you know non-interventionist types, uh, they don't seem to have a lot of power or whatever. So, I mean, you know, one kind of like uh, pejorative way you might describe this coalition is just like a coalition of the losers, right? Coalition of the people on the wrong side of history, um, that sort of thing. And you know, uh, I, I guess the question is. Um, is, 
is this a case of where, um, you know, politically speaking, before the first the first step is hitting rock bottom or admitting that you have a problem or or whatever, figuring out that like what you're doing is not working, so you got to do something else. Um, or is this just like, well, William F. Buckley, you know, when they started National Review, they said that they were standing athwart history yelling stop, right? So is this kind of like you guys are standing athwart the 21st century saying stop or I disapprove or anything like that? What what is your what is your thinking on that? Uh, I certainly wouldn't. Uh, I'm sorry to excuse- insult you by comparing you to William F. Buckley. <laughs> well, I, I would love to have... Uh, even a fraction of his energy. Uh, no, I, I certainly won't uh, steal his line. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know I think that the uh, it, it's possible that uh, loss brings clarity of vision and triumph brings um, cloudy vision. Uh, maybe maybe that's that's possible. Uh, I do think that social conservatives have been. Uh, routed uh, time and again over the course of my lifetime, they, um, you know, lost the uh, gay marriage debate. You know, out of wedlock births are at an all-time high. Uh, trans is uh, very quickly being accepted uh, and enforced in all elite institutions. Um, we have you know men winning women's swim competitions and being celebrated for it. So social conservatives have certainly lost a great deal. And yeah, I I would say that uh, millennial socialists have also uh, been routed. I mean, they thought that they were offering a real challenge to the uh, political offerings that were available, but they were first defeated by then really, uh, readily absorbed into the uh, Clinton uh, coalition. A few years ago, there was maybe a, a somewhat similar type of thing, the tra- so-called Tratonista uh, movement or whatever of these um, young uh, Catholic, economically Bernie-affiliated people um, who were trying to like maybe do some sort of similar, va- vaguely similar, although more religiously Catholic-focused synthesis. and. Uh, now a lot of those people, if you look at where they are, where they are now, like most of them are just like normal Biden Democrats or whatever. Um, with like uh, you know U- Ukraine flags and their Twitter handles or whatnot. So I don't know. I mean, uh, that's that's not necessarily a auspicious uh, sign. Although obviously those those were mostly like just random. Uh, minor Twitter personalities, uh, as opposed to like some of the people that you have on your your masthead, of course, who you know even even get to be <laughs> in the New York Times or on TV occasionally. Yeah, I'm uh, very pleased with the uh, tremendous response we've received from uh, you know some some of the most thoughtful writers uh, working today, coming from all as you say all sorts of perspectives. And I'm, I'm also uh, flattered by the uh, press coverage, which is generally critical, but uh, clearly thinks that there's something potentially important going on here. And I, I think I really think that 
that is the case. If we can have um, a form of politics that is uh, less less tied to um, you know the liberalism and economics common on the right, and less tied to the liberalism culture common on the left, I think we might be able to uh, uh, forge a political tendency that has really broad appeal to Americans with just very normal everyday aspirations. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm quite, quite delighted with the reception so far. Isn't the, and I'll try to say this is, uh, isn't there an, a limitation though, if you're trying to forge a, a political consensus and to use Josiah's cruel words that I wouldn't have said, um, if this is something of a coalition of perceived losers, does this not make the potential coalition that would follow, doesn't it make it limited? And this isn't exactly a Reaganite vision of, of empowerment that can appeal to a broad spectrum of people from regardless of their uh, political persuasion. Isn't this isn't this geared towards people that feel like they are disenfranchised and isn't there, isn't that inherently uh, a minority position? Uh, am I wrong about that? Yes, I think so. Um, for two reasons. One, I think you misread the um, history of ideological movements. If you look at the neoconservatives who have played such a central and vital role in American life, they began as Trotskyists, which were not exactly uh, history's greatest winners. These were the uh, losers of intercommunist debates. And so I think that it would, given the fact that we have some people who are disillusioned with the modern left, to suggest that they might not have a great role in shaping the course of American history, that's, that's almost the opposite of the case. And then, you know, Compact is, is very, very immediately concerned with um, how we can improve the lot of everyday Americans. I think that much of Reagan's appeal was bound up in the perception that he had exactly the same concern. I don't say that our politics resemble Reagan's in any way, but I don't. Our interests are not alienated from normal America. Thank you very much for joining us, Matthew. Anyone who wants should check out the new site at compactmag.com. Uh, you have a chance to subscribe and uh, there is a lot of interesting content. So thank you very much for joining us. Today. Yeah. Thank you, Josiah. And thank you, Doug. And yes, I urge all your listeners to come to compactmag.com and uh, subscribe. Thank you. Thank you.